I've told you all before how pastors are like first responders. That you have people in crisis and you have people that are in these moments of their lives and everything is just a wreck and everything is just wrong and like same people are running one way but first responders are running at the towers that are coming down and so pastors are kind of like that like same people are running away from the wreckage same people are running away from the mess but pastors are kind of running at it and so over the course of my ministry and over the course of uh, my life I've had what I consider really to be the privilege of of running at the wreckage sometimes of people's lives and seeing people really at the rock bottom points of their lives and at the difficulty of their lives and kind of helping shepherd them with Christ. You know, uh, Peter calls pastors the under shepherds of the great shepherd and so helping shepherd them through the valley of the shadow of death, if you will. And what I've learned for people is that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when that you will go through rock bottom moments in your life. You will go through rock bottom moments in your life. It's, it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it's going to look different for all of you. And those of you that have some decades in your life, you know this already. Those of you that, that are a little bit younger, maybe you're naive like I was, and you think that you're going to maybe be spared and you're going to avoid it. But, but those of you that, that have maybe a couple of gray hairs that you're pulling out, or maybe you have a head full, I don't know, uh, or maybe you don't have a head of anything, and you, you already know, and you know that rock bottom... Uh, mayhem, whatever, the Allstate commercial, like that's going to come in your life and there's going to be some rock bottom moments in your life. And some of them are totally unavoidable. Some of them are circumstances. It comes and finds you. It's death. It's diagnosis. It's, it's hardship. And you come to this place of despondency and you just throw up your hands and you don't know what you're going to do. Sometimes it's the result of sin in your life, isn't it? You come and you, you end up at a place and you say, I can't believe I did that. Sometimes you say, I can't believe that I would allow myself to have done fill in the blank. And you've brought calamity into your own life and you wonder how in the world can I ever recover from whatever. But you know what the gospel tells us? Can I tell you what I've learned as a first responder in these instances? Those things do not define you. They don't. Whatever it is, whether it's the death of somebody that you love, whether it's a natural disaster that strikes your house, whether it's an addiction that's come into your life, whether it's something that you've brought into your family, whether it's a calamity that found you or a calamity that you went out and sought, whatever it is that's in your life, whatever hardship that is that what the gospel promises, what the gospel assures is that that difficulty is not the defining characteristic of your life. What defines you is how you respond to it. What defines you is how you respond to it. If it is a calamity that found you, it will reveal the character of your faith. It will reveal whether or not you trust God. It will reveal whether or not 
you will be able to, to rest in your church and it will reveal whether or not you will be able to, to, to let go of all of the things that you're trying to control and all the train things that you're trying to hold together and your self-sufficiency and whether or not you will trust in the sufficiency of Christ and in the faithfulness of God and in the, in the sufficiency of the promises of God. It's sin. It's sin that you, that you went out and found, that you went out and did things that you thought unimaginable, the things that you thought that you weren't even capable of. It'll be about repentance, restoration, response, response. That's what will define you. That's what will define you, not the event. That's what the gospel assures. You know what we see in the life of Jesus today? What we see in the life of Jesus is something that is surprising to many people. What we see in the life of Jesus is weakness. Weakness. See, the, the, the thing about these, these catastrophic events, these, these rock-bottom moments in our life, is that they are all part of the human experience. They're all part of the human complex, right? They're all part of this, this human experience that all of us go through. And it's one of the reasons that I am convinced that Jesus gave us the church, that Jesus didn't just save us into the kingdom, but that Jesus gave us this earthly manifestation of the kingdom called the church. He gave us one another, that he saved us into a community of disciples, each other. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus himself was so fully human that Jesus also took part in this human experience of weakness, this human experience of rock bottom. And we are going to see Jesus quite literally at his rock bottom moment in the human experience. And what we're going to see for Jesus is that Jesus' rock-bottom experience, like ours, doesn't define him. Rather, it is Jesus' response to that rock-bottom moment that will define him. It is Jesus' response to this rock-bottom moment that will reveal the truthfulness of his identity as the, God, of the Son of God. It is Jesus' response in his moment of weakness that will reveal the character of his faithfulness to the will of God, his, the character of his faithfulness to carry forward what the mission is that he has been given. See, there have been heretics throughout church history that have believed that Jesus didn't truly experience any real suffering on the cross because Jesus is some form of Clark Kent, right? Like Clark Kent, when we think about him, we think like he really didn't have to struggle to get up and go to work every day. He really didn't need coffee to shake off a sleepy morning like we do, right? Because he's just Superman with glasses. And Jesus, he really didn't have a lot of the human temptation that we did and the, a lot of the human weakness that we did in the, in the cross really really wasn't all that difficult and the, and the temptation in the wilderness and the temptation and all like all of that really wasn't that difficult because he's just God with a beard right like, like it's really just kind of a, a human like he, he's God that wears a robe right but Jesus isn't Clark Kent and Jesus isn't just God with a beard Jesus was fully man, and he experienced everything that humans knew and everything that human experienced because Jesus was 
fully with a man nature and he was fully our representative to God. And on the cross, Matthew is to make perfectly clear, it is a man that dies there and he suffers in every way and was tempted in every way and he is weak in every way and he suffers and faces all the things that we face. Now he never knew sin the way that we know sin and never sinned in any way. So he didn't repent in those ways, but he fully new weakness and rock bottom as we know it when we're going to see. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to see Jesus in the, in the context of Passion Week throughout church history. This has been known as Jesus's agony. Jesus's agony. When you get to G, uh, Matthew chapter 26 verse 36, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36, God's word says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking and talking with him, or taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, and for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed, and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Within the Mount of Olives, there was a, a place, uh, a place that Jesus liked to use at respite that we now know as Gethsemane. Now, the word Gethsemane meant press, okay? So it's most likely that it was a, an an olive, uh, an olive press, a place that the olives would have been taken and they would have been pressed so that they could have made olive oil. And so there would have been walls that would have been built around it and it would have been, uh, and then there would have been a press there, like two stones where they could have rolled it and they would have put the olives in there and they would have pressed it and made the olive oil. And so it would have been a perfect place where Jesus, and John tells us that Jesus frequently went there. And so it would have been a perfect place where Jesus could have retreated and kind of gotten alone by himself and just prayed and read the scriptures and, and sought the Lord. And it's really a powerful, a powerful picture when you stop and you think about it. Now, it's amazing when you really stop and think that the, of the picture that Matthew is painting for us. Matthew is painting a picture of Jesus seeking out companionship. He says that as they go into Gethsemane, that 
Matthew, you got Judas that's already left the fold, right? Like Judas has already left the fold and he's went to bring all of the, all of the tribunal to Jesus to go and deliver him over. And so you're left with 11 and he leaves eight of the disciples at the gate and he takes th- the three closest disciples to Jesus and he takes them into the garden with him. And now, these are the same three that have went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, if you'll remember, back to Matthew chapter 17, uh, Peter, James, and John, the same three that have went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. So these are the, the three best friends of Jesus, those that are the closest to him, those that are nearest to him in relationship and in proximity. So, so he's taken these three into the midst of the garden so that they can pray together, so that he can have companionship. And so you have Matthew here, and Matthew is really going to great lengths to undermine this ancient heresy that Jesus is something less than human, that he's like a like cyborg God like that looks like a human, but he's not really a human. He's really God that's kind of um, pretending to be a human. And so he's showing him to be fully human, that it's really a human that's going to die on the cross, not an imaginary human, not a a God pretending to be human. And he's showing him to be a human by showing that he has a need for companionship, by showing that he has a need to have friends there with him, that by having these three companions of his here in his lowest moment on the night before he is to be crucified, the night that he is to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. Now, I think there's a lot for us to be learned, and we could we could do a you know a three or four week preaching series just on this one text. But there's a lot for us to learn just by Jesus taking uh, Peter, James, and John with him into the garden to pray. Now, I, what I want to focus on though is the nature of discipleship here by looking at Peter, James, and John going with Jesus. Because what we see here, and we're going to be relentless, continue to be relentless on our preaching of discipleship, what we see here is that the nature of a discipleship relationship is to be a two-way street. It's to be a two-way street. It's to be a mutually beneficial relationship. It's to be a mutually beneficial relationship. That, that is, that you have Jesus, who is obviously the more spiritually mature, right? Yet you have Jesus who obviously more fully manifests the fruit of the Spirit. You have Jesus who obviously has richer worship, has better quiet times, knows the Scriptures more fully than the other three. But Paul had told, has told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that there's nobody in the body of Christ that can look to anybody else in the body of Christ and say, I don't need you. And that means that even those that are more spiritually mature can't look to those that are less spiritually mature and say, I have no need of you. That means that those that are in discipleship relationships have that the disciple maker should look at his disciples or her disciples and say, I need you in my life. So, so let's look at this and let's, let's unpack this a little bit. So first off, in this mutually beneficial relationship, there's the apparent one, right? There's the apparent beneficiary, all right? So you have the disciple benefits from the relationship with the disciple maker, right? So, so the disciples are benefiting here by going into the garden with Jesus. How? They have a front row seat of watching Jesus deal with a crisis in his life. They have a front row seat of watching Jesus in his most desperate moment, seeking the Father and watching Jesus as he 
figures out how it is, or, or as he seeks the Father and, and copes with this incredible pressure and this incredible stressor in his life. That's what discipleship is. That's what discipleship is. See, discipleship is not book club. Discipleship is not book club. Discipleship is giving someone a front row seat in your life to see how you deal with the stresses, stresses of life. To see how you deal with the crises of life. To see how you deal with marriage. To see how you deal with parenting. To see how you deal with financial decisions. To see how you deal with job situations. To see how when things go wrong in your life, how a man or a woman of God copes with those things. To see how when your health fails, how a man or a woman of God copes with those things. How when you're a young married couple, how you cope with that as a man or a woman of God. If you're a, an older married couple, if you're in retirement, how a man or a woman trying to please and honor God with their life should live their life. And it's inviting other people to come and observe you, to search the scriptures with you as you do that, to seek God's face and to pray as you do that. To, so, so as your life goes, you're giving somebody a window in your life as you go and as you live your life. It's not just gathering once a week to read a book. It's to live your life through the ups and downs of life, through the good and bad of life, through the hard and easy of life, through the, through the fun and the not fun of life, through the tears and laughter of life. See, discipleship is caught more than it's taught. Discipleship is caught more than it's taught. It's being around people that love God and aren't afraid to show you, but also just aren't afraid to be a real person. Aren't afraid to be a real person. They're not robots, right? They're not, they're not, they're not built out of steel. They're, like, they're real human beings, array, willing to be real human beings in front of you and run after Jesus and invite you to be a part of it, right? Like They're, they're willing to do that. And what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus is struggling. Jesus is battling. The main temptation in Jesus' life is not in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan takes him out to the wilderness and does the three temptations. The main temptation in Jesus' life is in Matthew 26 when he wants God's will to be other than what it is. The main temptation in Jesus' life is when he wants God's will, to, when he desires God's will to be different than what God's will actually is. And here he is, and he invites his disciples to come into the, into the Gethsemane to witness him pray to God and to ask God if there is any other way that his will can be different than what it is. That's discipleship. That's what discipleship looks like. And here his disciples are having a first-hand view. Now there's something I want you to witness here. There's something I want you to see. Do you notice what he does? He doesn't bring all, all, all 11 in, does he? he? It says that he brings Peter, James, and John in, and then he says, I'm sorrowful unto death, right? He, he, he doesn't show the full breadth of his sorrow to all 11. He, he leaves eight at the gate to kind of keep watch. And then he brings the other three, the three that he's closest to. Now, 
He's shown the full 11 a lot, right? Like he's been very personal, a lot more personal with those 11 than he has with the crowds and with all of the other groups, right? But, but then he brings this other three and that's when he says, I'm very troubled. I'm very sorrowful. He, he becomes greatly distressed, right? And so he doesn't reveal the full extent of himself to the whole crowd. He becomes more intimate, more personal with a few, more revealed with a few. That's the nature of discipleship too. It's to pick a few and to live in a, in a glass house in front of a few. To become more fully revealed in front of a few people, in front of a select a few people, so that they can see as imperfect as you are, as flawed as you are, as raw as you are, is to live a, in a glass house in front of them so that they can watch you run after Jesus. Isn't that what Paul said? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, Paul's also said, I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm not a perfect man. In Romans 7, Paul says, a lot of the time I do the very thing that I hate. I don't do the very thing that I love. I'm not a perfect man, but I'm going to try my very best to imitate, after, imitate Christ. And I invite you into my life to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Can I tell you something about me? I don't preach to everybody the way that I preach to you. Did you know that? A couple of weeks ago, I preached a revival at First Baptist Church Ashland. And I love Ashland, Alabama. That's, it was Megan's home church. I preached a four-night revival. But I don't preach to them like I preach to you. You know why? I don't love them the same way. I love them, but I don't love them as much. I love y'all more. And when I'm with y'all, I bear my heart a lot more. I let y'all into my life because I've committed to live my life before Iron City Baptist Church. Now, that may not be very comforting to y'all. And that may not be very good news. But, but I, have, I have promised my life and committed my life to Iron City Baptist Church. And someday you have me on a high, and some days you have me on a, on a low, and some days you got me just in the middle somewhere. But man, before you, I'm just, I'm just a lot more open, and I'm a lot more raw, and I'm a lot more unhinged. I'm just, I'm just me when I'm with you, right? But when I'm with my D group, I'm a lot more open. I'm a lot more open. When I, when, I'm with, when I was with James and Andrew and Daniel and Chris and Keith, and the, when I'm with those guys, man, those, it's just like, you know, like, like they, I, I'd say something sometimes to those guys. They'd be like, is that our preacher talking? You know, like, I don't, I don't know about that guy, you know, like, it, but because I had committed to live my life in front of those guys. I had committed to tell them, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Like, this is something, I don't know if this is, I don't know what the Bible says about this. I don't really know if this is what I believe or not. And I don't really... And, and sometimes, like, that's grappling with stuff in front of people. And, that's, and, that's, and, and, I, and I would confess sin to them. And, and you, you, you start hearing your pastor in the Bible Belt start confessing sin to you. That's weird, right? Like, and, and, and that's a unique experience. But you know what? I wasn't fully open with them either. Not like I am with the elders. I'm a, I'm a lot more open with the elders than I am with them. I confess things to the And I'm a lot more up and down with the elders than I, I was with our degree. I'm even more transparent with them because, because I have an even different discipleship relationship with our elders than I did with my D group because I, I have a greater responsibility with them and a an even deeper level of intimacy. And you know what? Even beyond them, with our staff, I'm even more open and transparent with, man, sometimes I call Andrew and John and I'm just like crying like a baby, you know? And I'm like, they're trying to put me back together. And then with Megan, don't none of y'all want to be in her position. Don't none of y'all want to be in her position because I have an even greater, I have the greatest responsibility to disciple her and Gracie Kate 
and Sarah, right? And so it's, it's living in a glass house. That's what discipleship is. It's running after Jesus in a glass house and saying, come, be a part of my life and catch Jesus from me. Let's read the scriptures together. But it's not book club, y'all. It's not book club. It's running after Jesus and loving Jesus and inviting people to be a part of your life. We need fewer book clubs and more glass houses, life on life discipleship like what Jesus had. But this is a two-way street, right? I don't even think what I just said is primary in the picture. I don't even think that's primary in the text. I think it's secondary. I think what's primary in the text and what's so beautifully powerful in the text is that Jesus is going to his disciples for strength. Jesus is going to his disciples for strength and they fail. They fail at it. Three times he goes to them and they're asleep. They fell at it. But here's Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God. Nobody has walked more intimately with the Father than Jesus Christ. And yet, here is Jesus going to his very own disciples, and he is asking them, I am greatly troubled. I am greatly distressed. I need a friend. I need a friend. I need a friend to pray for me. I need a friend to encourage me. I need a friend to lift me up. I need my disciples to come through for me. I need my disciples to have my back right here. Think about that. You know how we think of Jesus and his disciples? We think about Jesus and his disciples as being a host and 12 parasites, don't we? We think about Jesus and his disciples as being a host and 12 parasites. You know how Jesus thought about his disciples? 13 friends. 13 friends. Now certainly, certainly Jesus is the source of grace. And certainly Jesus is the source of wisdom. And certainly Jesus is the source and provision of salvation among those disciples. But when Jesus was low, and when Jesus was beaten down, and when Jesus was at the rock bottom moment of his human life, Jesus went to his friends, his disciples. And he said, I need benefit from you. I need benefit from you. I need friendship. I need your prayers. I need your love. I need your encouragement. I need you to go before the Father on my behalf. I need you just with me in the garden. I need you close to me. I need you right beside me. I need you to hold me up right now. You see, the disciple-making relationship is not one of just pouring out. It's one of being filled up too. The disciple-making relationship is not one where you have to be the, the Yoda up on the stage sitting Indian style with the disciples gathered around you while you just spout out great wisdom. I think this is why so few people want to make disciples. No, it's where you gather with friends in your, la- your living room and laugh and cut up and, and just figure out life together where maybe you're two steps ahead of them and you just say, let's just keep running ahead together. It's where you come and you make the best of friendships together. It's where when you're having a bad day, when you're hit you've hit rock bottom, you've got somewhere to turn to. Can I tell you, I wouldn't have survived the last two or three years if it weren't for my disciples. I wouldn't have. Now, I don't often think of them as my disciples. It even feels strange just to say it that way right now. But John Blanton would tell you that I've discipled him 
And I wouldn't have survived if it weren't for him holding me up. Andrew would tell you that I've had some role in his discipleship, and I wouldn't have survived if it weren't for him holding me up. Daniel and, and James and Chris and the... I'm, I'm telling y'all, before God as, as my account, these men that would tell you that I have had a role in their discipleship, they have held me together. They have held me together. You know what you need in your life? Friends. Friends. We don't need book clubs. clubs. We need friends. We need friends. You know what Jesus had at the end of his three-year ministry? Friends. He had Friends. Friends that he could call into the middle of this garden. On his most agonizing night. On his lowest moment. Now they, they failed. They failed. But he had people. He had people. He had people that he could go and that were there with him. They went to sleep. They went to sleep. They were like Andrew in a sermon. But they were there. They were there. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, the discipleship community is a beautiful, powerful, Christ-built entity that is now in the church. Won't you take part in it? It is an enterprise that has been given to you. It is an obligation, but even more than an obligation, it is a gift to you. It is a gift to you. Won't you take part in the gift that God has given to you that you can sustain in this if you only come? Andrew talks about groups every week. If you only come an hour and have all that stuff, right? If you, What you're understanding, if you only come an hour and a half, you're missing out on the gift gift of God to you on the gift of God to you what we see here what's amazing and important for us to recognize is the the, the scope of the prayer that Jesus prays right Jesus begins to pray as he, as he goes and he, and he goes past where he's put his disciples and he's under such distress that he just collapses where he's at, right? He's under such distress that he, he collapses literally on his face under the, the weight of the burden that he has. And he collapses on his face and he begins to, to cry out. The, one, the, some of the other accounts use the Aramaic, Abba, this, this really intimate term, like, like, like Dad, Father. There's all of these echoes of, of, the, of the, the way that he taught his disciples to pray back in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Like, like, like Heavenly Father, my Father, my Father, will you listen to me? Are you, are you there? Are you there? Listen, Father, Father. The word he uses here, troubled, means, means to be despondent. It means to be almost at the point where, where there's no, no hope left. Luke tells us in Luke 22 that, that he's under such emotional and physical strain that, that he come, has a condition called hematidrosis, which means the capillaries in his face burst and blood begins to seep out of the pores in his skin. And he literally begins to sweat blood. He begins to pray in this cup pass from me. If it, if it is possible, let this, let this cup pass from me. So we have to ask, what is it that has Jesus so rattled? What is it that, that has Jesus so despondent? Is it the cross? Many people look at this passage and they think that what it is that has Jesus under 
such distress is that the next day, the ne very next day, Jesus will be tried and Pilate will ra uh, wash his hands and the crowd will declare, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus will be nailed to the cross and he will experience that Roman crucifixion, which, which was so agonizing that, was, that they invented a word because it was too painful for any of their vocabulary. A word, the word excruciating, which literally means of the cross. I don't think that's it at all. You see, if it was the pain of the cross that caused Jesus to be so despondent, it would mean that he was less, less courageous, had less valor than many of his own followers. See, up until this point, what we've seen, in the, even in the days and the hours before this, Jesus has been, seemed unflappable, hasn't he? I mean, he's talked about this coming day as though it is matter of fact. He's, he's known that this is coming. He's been coaching up his disciples. He's talked about their mission. He's prepared them for their own denial, their own abandonment. He's prepared them for the days that are... He's even talked about his father's mission. He's talked about his father's glory. He's talked about his, uh, his own return. He's told them that they must persevere until the end so that they might be saved. He's told them that... That brother is going to turn to his brother and father against son and son against father, father and parenting his child and child against parent. He's told them all of these things. None of these things are surprises to him. He's told them the exact methodology of his, of his execution. In fact, Peter, he will, be, he will be crucified himself upside down, praying and praising God as it is done. Paul is executed, and as Paul is executed, he, he tells his protege uh, Timothy that you are to rejoice in sharing in the sufferings of the Lord. James the just is pushed from the pinnacle of the temple, and as he is pushed from the pinnacle of the temple, he is, falls and he's not killed. His legs are broken and he gets up on these broken legs and he begins to pray for his executioners and they club him to death as he is praying and praising God. Praying for their well-being nonetheless. Stephen, we, we read the first Christian martyr. He's stoned to death. Rocks, he's thrown in this pit and rocks are being hurled at his face until he is to die. And what does he do? He looks up to heaven and there is Jesus honored by Stephen's martyrdom and he stands at the right hand of the Father and he begins to, to praise God and pray for his executioners until his face is ultimately caved in. We read of men like Bonhoeffer who, write, who walks gallantly to the gallows without the slightest bit of a trembling hand until he is hanged for the Lord Jesus. Men who who pray that, that the king would relent and allow the spread of the Bible in, in the native tongue and burned at the stake without showing fear. And we are to believe that Jesus, Jesus, the one who gave them that same spirit by which they lived in courage, Jesus, the one who, whose name they do all of these valorous acts, that, that he, he is the one that is so shaken. No, it won't stand. It won't stand that it is the suffering that is to cause Jesus such, such, such consternation, such, such fear. I think the reason, the reason that Jesus is so distressed, the reason that Jesus is here found with such despondency is found in what he prays, the cup. The cup. 
See, remember Matthew, remember the context. Matthew is, is writing to a Jewish audience, and, and writing to a Jewish audience, they have a lot of Old Testament context, right? And so they understand exactly what is meant by the cup. And the, the cup was, was the wrath of God. It is used in Isaiah, it is used in Ezekiel, it is used throughout the Psalms by a number of the prophets to, to talk about the wrath of God, the wrath of God that is going to be drank and poured out to the dregs, it says. The wrath of God that has been stored up by God against all of mankind for all of mankind's sin. And yet on the cross, what Christ knows and what Christ cries out in his dereliction as he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he knows is on the cross, the unmitigated wrath of God will be poured out and directed upon him solely in that moment. I wrote it like this. Since the time of Adam and Eve, for thousands of years, God had been patient and long-suffering with the sins of all of mankind. He had told us from the beginning that if we sinned, if we rebelled against him, that we would surely die. And yet, he had allowed us to live far longer than we should have and forgiven many of us our sins and allowed us not just to live, but to live in relationship with him. And stored up in that cup was the wrath owed to us all. Stored up in that cup was the wrath owed to Eve for eating the fruit of the tree and for Adam for standing there and doing nothing. Sword, there was the wrath owed to Cain for killing Abel and Abraham failing to trust God. Stored there was Jacob's deceitfulness and his son's jealousy and David's murderous conspiracy. In the cup was the wrath owed for Solomon's promiscuous eye and Israel's unfaithful worship and the abandonment of God's law. Stored in that cup was the wrath that was owed for the temple's thievery and the Pharisees' hypocrisy and Israel's murder of the Son of God. But stored in that cup wasn't just the wrath stored up for the sins past and present. But stored up in that cup was the sins of all eternity future. You see, the cup that Jesus prayed would pass represented all those that would be led astray by wicked popes and forgiveness sold to the highest bidder. Stored in that cup was the wrath stored up for the crusades and for the deaths of millions of Jews, Christians, and others during the Holocaust. Stored up in that cup is the wrath of God stored up for the slaughter of millions of unborn babies through abortion and the apathy and consumerism that plagues the modern church. As Jesus prays for the Father in heaven, then the cup would pass. He prays that God's wrath stored up from all sin, present, past, and future would be spared from him that the father would search his unsearchable sovereignty to seek out some other way to satisfy his own justice and holiness that he might be spared the forsaking of his own cross. See, brothers and sisters, what, was, what this meant was that the eternal object of the father's own love, the son, would become the momentary object of the father's wrath. Imagine, brothers and sisters, in all eternity, all eternity, existing outside of time, before watches existed, before the sun rose and set, before the, the Spirit hovered over the dark and the deep, the Son and the Father existed in love, beauty, and in perfect harmony with one another. 
the Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father, the Beloved. And in the object of affection, the object of perfect harmony and forever. And in this moment, in this second, because of you and me, because of the, of the forgiving and relenting grace and mercy of the Father so that He would be proven holy, so that He would be proven just. In that second, on the cross, the unmitigated wrath, there would be a fracture in the Godhead and all of the Father's wrath would be poured out over the Son. And on the cross, for the first time, in all eternity, God the Son would know loneliness. He would be departed from the fellowship of His Father. He would be departed from the community of His Father. The one who is perfectly righteous would be made as though He were unrighteous. The one who had never sinned would be made as though He were the essence of sin himself. The one who deserved the inheritance of all the universe would be given the inheritance of all mankind, the very wrath of God himself. And as the Son of Man considered it in the garden, his entire body recoiled and he quivered and the capillaries in his face burst and his pores of his skin poured out the blood that was there. Well, this morning, we have no concept of the wrath of God. We have no concept of the wrath of God. You know how I know? Some of you, you don't know God. You don't know God. You come in and you go out every week apathetic and indifferent in your sin. You come in in your sin and you will leave in your sin and there will not be a drip of sweat in your brow or care in your mind. You leave justified. You believe that religion is all contrived. You believe yourself to be perfectly justified. You hear of the wrath of God and you are indifferent nonetheless. Some of you are brothers and sisters. You have experienced the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus. And yet there are people in your life that will face the wrath of God forever. And you do not care. You are indifferent. You do not weep. You do not pray. You do, it does not bother you. Your children know more of the Kardashians than they do the Lord Jesus. And you do not screech. And the Lord Jesus faces on the eve that he is to know the wrath of God. And the capillaries in his face burst. We do not know of the wrath of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are clueless. We are clueless. This moment, this moment served as a great marker of prayer in Matthew's mind. He gives at least three hints to the Lord's prayer that he had taught in Matthew 6. Remember Jesus said, Pray that your will be done on earth as it is on heaven. And here, what does he pray? Jesus didn't just teach us to pray. He was no hypocrite. He practiced what he preached. He practiced what he preached. And it's a remarkable thought when you think that the Son of God preached. 
the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things have been made. But what does it mean to pray? What does it mean to pray? Prayer is an acknowledgement of weakness and Jesus prayed. Prayer is an act of submission and Jesus prayed. Prayer is an exercise of faith and Jesus prayed. Prayer is seeking understanding and Jesus prayed. But do you see what it means to pray like Jesus? You see what it means to say, pray like Jesus. It is to want God's will more than you want your well-being. It is to want God's will more than you want your well-being because God's will is, is what is best for you. It is to want God's glory more than what you most desire. Because what you really most desire is God's glory. Can I ask you, do you pray like Jesus? These are not nursery rhyme prayers. This is not God is good, God is great, now I lay me down to sleep. These are the prayers that will change a generation. These are the prayers that will change a church. These are the prayers that will launch a family to the mission field. These are the prayers that will change your life. These are the prayers that are terrifying. See, Gethsemane moments are coming in your life. Gethsemane moments are coming in your life. Moments in which you are distressed and sorrowful unto death. Moments in which you are scared and depressed. Moments in which you aren't sure if you want what you want or if you want what God wants. Moments in which you want health and God has for you illness. Moments in which you want wealth and God has for you poverty. Moments in which you want to stay and God moves you. God, moments in which you want a child and God leaves you barren. Moments in which you want home but God has for you Asia or Africa or South America. God is going to bring you into the Garden of Gethsemane and He is going to, just over the crest, show you where the cross is and you'll be greatly distressed and you'll agonize in prayer and that's when you'll learn how much like Jesus you are. That's when it'll be decided whether or not you'll be used to change a generation or not. That's when it'll be decided whether or not you'll be used to shape your family tree for God's glory or not. That's when it'll be decided whether or not God will use you as a bedrock of a great church and a great movement of His Spirit or not. Will you pray like Jesus, church? Will you pray like Jesus, church? Will you pray for His glory more than for your good? Will you pray for His faith? more than what is easy will you pray for his desires more than for your own will you play, pray like Jesus because the moment of Gethsemane is coming to your door the moment of Gethsemane is descending upon your house will you be like Christ let's pray